Who knew in the moment? The premise of the show is that as you're living your life, very rarely do you realize the magnitude of a moment while it's happening. However, in hindsight, we can see all of the pivotal moments that led to where we're at. Thanks so much for tuning in. Hello and welcome to another episode of Who Knew in the Moment, the podcast. I'm your host, Phil Friedrich, and today I am honored to be with Dr. Aleem Sadiq. Uh, Dr. Sadiq is a cardiothoracic surgeon in Omaha, Nebraska at the University of Nebraska Medical Center. And one of the things that I think is super intriguing about his story, and as we talk through it, we'll get there, is constantly being open to taking opportunities. And when you take opportunities, doors will open. So Dr. Sadiq, thanks for being with me today. Thanks, Phil. It's a pleasure. You bet. To be on your show. So to start off and just kind of highlight your story, um, you have a background of international. So talk a little bit about where you're born and the early years growing up. So um, I was I was born in England in uh, in a small town called Pontefract, uh, and that is in uh, the Yorkshire region. Uh, and, uh, and that, so, so my parents have sort of a little bit of a complicated history, but they're of South Asian descent, uh, and they had both settled in England, uh, and met there, uh, and they're, they're both doctors. So they met, they met working there. Uh, and then they, uh, obviously they got, they got married. I was born, uh, there in England. My, my older brother, uh, uh of course was also born there. Um, and, and then we, you know, I was probably two or three when we left England. So quite young, uh, and, uh, my father in particular had family in, in Pakistan, uh, and, uh, the, I think there, my parents decided that, that moving to Pakistan would be good for us to grow up in, in Pakistan. Um, and I think at the time there were some difficulties in England, particularly related to race. Um, and uh, and they thought it would be better for us to to grow up in Pakistan. So we so we moved to Pakistan when I was quite young. Um, and uh, and then I I was was in Pakistan until after I completed medical school. Um, but uh, but I was fortunate in that uh, we um, you know, got got a chance to 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 maintain a bit of a connection with England too, because we vacationed there and we had family there as well, um, and um, I was fortunate in other in other ways as well. So, growing up, having parents that are in the medical field, being doctors as well, uh, was there ever any uh, pressure or expectation that you would go that route? Or did they say, hey, whatever it is you want to do, and you just happen to be intrigued by their vocations? Talk a little bit about that growing up. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I, I remember even as a child thinking that I wanted to be a doctor. Now, I didn't know what kind of a doctor. Uh, and I would, uh, you know, confess that I, I don't think I had really thought about it in any, you know, in any detailed way. It was just, it was really an influence of having parents who were both doctors. Um, and so I sort of grew up thinking, oh, I want to be a doctor. Um, and, uh, and so they, I, I can't say that they really put any 
pressure on me to do that. Um, although, you know, that's what I was always saying from when I was young. So, you know, they never dissuaded me from doing it either, you know, they were just like, oh, okay. Um, and that's sort of uh, the direction I went. I, I did a, a little bit later start to wonder, and this is when I was actually, you know, thinking actively, you know, working to get into medical school. Uh, I did wonder a little bit about whether, you know, this was really the right choice for me. Um, and uh, so I so I did have my doubts um, at that point, because they sort of come to a point where you're you're actually doing it. And then you're like, hmm, wait a second, did I ever really think about this? Um, and, and medical school in Pakistan is a little bit different than in the United States, because you don't do an, uh, an undergraduate mm. uh, uh, degree. So you basically go from the equivalent of high school, uh, which is a, maybe one year longer than in the United States, right. but essentially the equivalent of high school. And then you go into medical school directly. Uh, and so uh, you sort of make a decision relatively early. And I think there are probably people who went into medical school from, high, you know, in Pakistan from high school and then and then found that they that wasn't something that they wanted to do. So, yeah. Well, so once again, I myself did not go to medical school. That would have been a, a travesty for all parties involved, had I. But uh, <laughs> I also know the rigor that it takes to get through medical school. And I sit there and I think, man, 19 or 18 year old Phil probably would never have been able to make that that work. So talk a little bit about just the dedication and the sacrifice that it takes, um, you know, to be able to progress through school. I mean, in general, but also at that young of an age. Yeah, it's, you know, it's hard to, you know, it's hard to know a different route uh, <laughs> because, you know, obviously you, you only go through one path in time. Um, there, there, there clearly is a lot of commitment from the um, time and education aspect of things. There were certainly, there were friends of mine who didn't go through medical school who did uh, ended up going down different paths. And I did sometimes, you know, imagine what, what that path would have been like at, at that point and wonder yeah. if I was missing out on some of that. I, I guess what I perhaps miss, felt like I was missing out at the time, uh, which now I recollect rather, it's not really something that I think about now, but as I recollect, uh, you know, I think that at the time I, maybe felt like there were other opportunities uh, of things to explore that that I didn't because I didn't have you know the sort of undergraduate education that you have here and and I could contrast myself with my brother so my my older brother uh did uh leave Pakistan and and came to the United States and did it and had an undergraduate education before going on to sort of more advanced degrees and stuff so so you know in comparison to him and you know i would talk to him and he would be doing all kinds of very interesting things uh, and learning about very diverse things um and so uh, a little bit at the time i was like hmm I, you know that would have been nice to have done yeah uh so so i i, I think that you know now it's not something I think about at all, really. Um, there are, of course, some advantages to to going directly into medical school in that you're a little bit younger 
when yeah. you get done with medical school then then people would be in the united states now and so you you gain a little bit uh in age perhaps um not dramatically because medical school is longer than in the united states mm. so you have a little bit more high school and then you have a little bit more medical school so it doesn't come out as being a dramatic difference yeah. but still you're a little bit younger which is not a which is not necessarily a bad thing as you go to into the next stage of life but but you probably lose a little bit of diversity in education yeah so as your brother had come to the United States, um, so after medical school, you follow and head to Texas, uh, Texas Southwestern for um, additional opportunities. So talk a little bit about making that decision to, you know, leave where family is, leave parents and and, and come to a, a new area. Yeah. So, so, you know, in, in, in practice, um, there was a period in between before okay. Uh, I was in Texas where I was in Boston. So that was the first place that I was in the United States. Uh, and um, the so a lot of people who go to medical school in Pakistan leave Pakistan to get training to do the next step of their training. Uh, and, it, you know, before, before my time, uh, well, my time going through medical school, you know, a decade or two earlier than that, uh, people would have mostly gone to England uh, and and trained there. Uh, and then this was sort of a shift towards people going to the United States. And so it, it was a fairly well-trodden path, not like a super well-trodden path, but certainly a path that people did take. Uh, and so it wasn't, uh, you know, entirely something that, that, that people hadn't hadn't done before, and and so as I was going through medical school, uh, I was certainly thinking, um, you know, that that I would want to take the next step in the United States, um, and so during the course of medical school, there are a few things that you do in order to make that possible, um, and uh, then when I finished medical school, uh, or when I was reaching the end of medical school, I reached out to some people in in Boston to, to do some research there. Okay. And that was the next step. Understood. Now coming, you know, to, to the United States, different culture, you know, Boston, especially, right. I mean, <laughs> Boston is just a different city in and of itself than uh, a lot of the other ones in the United States. But, you know, was there a steep learning curve there or since you had some of the commonalities in, you know, education and, you know, a, a passion for, you know, the, this form of medicine, was that a pretty easy transition for you? Talk a little bit about that. Yeah. Uh, well, uh, again, it's interesting looking back now through the retrospectoscope, right? Um, it was um, it was a challenge, I think. I mean, it was a challenge for a variety of reasons. Um, it was a little bit of a cultural challenge. Hmm. Um, it was not as much of a language challenge because I spoke English well. Yeah. Um, it was definitely a financial challenge. Mm. Um, and, uh, you know, I, 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 I think I was fortunate to sort of, um, you know, I guess I was fortunate on the way to have people who helped and supported me. There was obviously my parents and family who were supporting me, but they weren't there. Uh, and they were fortunate that, 
uh, as I went to Boston, I, I, there were other people who supported me. Um, and, you know, I, a good simple example of that, I, I was looking for a room to stay in because uh, initially when I got there, I, I didn't have a place to stay. So I was sort of staying in like a hostel type place. Um, and, uh, uh, and I, uh, and I was working at, um, you know, uh, the research I was doing was at the, um, a hospital that was part of the Harvard university group. Mm. Um, and, uh, so they have like a, an area at, at the university where people, uh, advertise places to stay in rooms to let and things like that. And I remember I was in there just sort of like trying to find something and there was a, a lady who came in and, and offered up and was putting up an ad and I just sort of started talking to her and then she was like, I have a room. And I was like, whoa, I would really need a room. <laughs> um, uh, and she was, uh, and, and uh, you know, I told her what my budget was, which was pretty minimal. And she was like, well, that'll, that's fine. We will work with that with that. And, and, and she was really good to me. And, and she knew that I was really strapped financially and, and <laughs> you know, she went out of her way to make it easy for me. And, yeah. Um, uh, and so that's just sort of a simple example of the, of the first step, but I, but I did need the, the kindness of strangers, um, in the early days, um, for sure. Yeah. Well, and I think, you know, and once again, I'd love to hear your take on this, but regardless, you know, we're talking about it in a, in a scope that maybe certain people won't have ever done. And that's, you know, leave family behind and move to a whole new country. But uh, I think at the end of the day, you know, success comes when you have a group of people around you that can help support you, right? Uh, it's so hard to do anything at a significant level on your own. Um, you know, at the end of the day, there is that support of others, whether it's financial or emotional, that helps us get through those really tough times. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, yeah. Hundred percent. You need you need those people around you to to get you through that, um, and I and I was fortunate along the way. You know? Yes. So as you're progressing through, you said Boston was the first stop, and then was Texas the second one? Yeah, Texas was the second stop. So, um, so you you probably already know this, but uh, the um, when people apply for uh, training in in medicine beyond medical school they get into you know we get into a residency is what yeah. is what we call it um, and uh, unlike you know many jobs where you apply to a job and they either say yes or no there's a there's a there's a process that's a little bit different that's called a matching process yeah. uh, and and you may already be familiar with this but essentially uh, what you do as an individual is you rank different jobs or places where you want to train yeah. uh, and the places that are training people rank applicants and then there's a computer generated match and i don't know exactly how that computer generated <laughs> this match but at the end of it on a particular day it spits out you're going to this place yep. okay <laughs> and and so that's that's what it that's what it spat out. So it's spat out. You're going to you, you, the University of Texas Southwestern, which is in Dallas, which uh, is a great place to train in general surgery. And so, uh, and it was a place that I was quite keen to go to. So I was really pleased. Um, I, I guess I have to say that I had, you know, if you had asked me 
you know, five years before, you know, uh, would, would you end up in, or if you told me five years before you end up in Dallas, I would, I would never have thought, oh, I'm, yes, Dallas. I would have been like, where's Dallas? <laughs> so, um, but, uh, you know, that's, that's, um, that's where I was told to go. So you sort of take your marching orders and head down, head down to Texas. Now, um, it, it's not a total surprise because I did apply there. I did interview yeah. there. Um, I did like the place. Um, but obviously in five years prior to that, I would have had no sort of idea that I might land there. So in your time in these different residencies and, you know, maybe Texas specifically, was there anyone that you really felt like you started to, you know, be taken under their wing or, you know, really someone that you admired that was kind of helping build you and become better at your craft? Yeah. So for sure, you know, in, in, uh, I'd say in Boston, uh, I uh, worked in, uh, I did some research in a, in a lab with a surgeon um, and, uh, you know, that surgeon, is, his name was Richard Hoden uh, and, and he went out of his way for me uh, and supported my application uh, and uh, obviously supported me in my research there. Um, and then in, when I was in training in, in, in Dallas, there were other other surgeons who, who you know, supported me as well. Uh, and then, and then, you know, the next step after that was actually to end up to, to go to Tucson and, and train there. And, and one of the faculty there sort of took me under his wing. I particularly got interested in some of the things that he was interested in. And, and actually I continue to work with him, you know, today, which is now, wow. you know, 15 years later. <laughs> uh, and he supported me throughout my, throughout my career. Um, and so, uh, so yes, absolutely. There, there are people who've, who've gone out of their way for me, I feel. Now, one thing that's always interesting to me whenever you look at kind of having a mentor is there's two dynamics, right? One is the person has to be willing to spend time with you. They usually have to see something in you. Otherwise, they're not going to just take their time out, you know, because they're busy, right? They got other people they can be spending time with, but they usually have to see something. But then second is, uh, as the mentee, you have to be humble enough to take advice. You have, you have to be humble enough to say, I don't know it all. I'm more than happy to learn from you. So talk a little bit about that in, you know, maybe some of the relationships that you've been able to, to forge that way. Yeah, that's a that's a great point, uh, you know, Phil. And, and, I, and, you know, so I guess I haven't really thought about it in that particular way. Um, and so I'm sort of thinking about it a little bit as we as we talk. The um, I guess there's a couple of interesting things that I could, you know, that sort of dovetail from there. So one would be that now, um, now that I'm faculty and have been for some time, I've had the opportunity to work with, you know, several people who are medical students and uh, and trainees. Um, and I've, and I've tried to be supportive of them. Uh, and, and as you say, there are some who are more receptive and, uh, and some who are less. And, and, and what I've learned over time is that I try to be as upfront with them in the beginning about, you know, if we're going to be involved in any research project or whatever, uh, you might have, I, I, I think I try to be as upfront with them uh, or out as honest with them upfront about what, you know, what it involves. And, and then I'm completely open to, like, I'm going to be upfront with you. 
And then you can decide whether you want to do it or not. And if you don't want to do it, that's totally fine. I'd much rather know now, yes. than, you know, way down the road. Um, the, I, I, you know, when I was, when I was in, uh, in, in that position, um, uh, you know, I, I'm trying to think back to how it was and, and some of the relationships developed a little bit organically. It wasn't, it wasn't, um, you know, you're, you're there working with them. And, and then over a period of time, I, I guess maybe they do recognize something in me and, uh, and the relationship developed a little bit yeah. organically. Um, there were certainly times when people sort of sat down with me and were clearer about the expectations, et cetera, as well. Uh, and then there were, there were times where people sort of like, you know, I remember one of the, one of the people, one of the persons who's, who's been a fabulous mentee to me at one point saying, you know, sitting down with me and saying, you know what, you know, I, I don't, I, I have a certain amount of knowledge and I'd be happy to give it all to you. Like there's, there's nothing that, that I don't want to, you know, I want to hold, you know, I, it's not like I need to hold this away yeah. from, I give it all to you. And, you know, it, and that was, you know, at the time was just really impressive to me. Um, and, uh, and and I think you're right. You have to be sort of open to receiving that. So there's some openness on both ends. Um, some people have in 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 the medical field have written a little bit on this, but but interestingly, I don't I don't know that there's a ton of sort of you know thought or formal thought that goes into the mentee mentor sort of dynamic. Yeah. Uh, uh, but but I think you bring up interesting points. Is that there's a real commitment on on both ends in the in the process. Um, and at least for me, I think it's helpful to, to at least set out upfront what, what the relationship would involve. Yeah. Um, then of course it develops as you, as you go along. And in some cases it develops in a way that's really might end up being a lifelong, a lifelong connection. Absolutely. I love that. Now, as you're continuing to grow, um, you know, in your practice, the type of work you do is is uh i i can't speak to it because i don't do it but i would imagine i mean it's high stress in regards to the type of work that you do but there has to become a point where it's not overly stressful because you've practiced so much and i think that's an interesting dynamic of the medical school learning it and then doing it are you know two different things right you have to learn it first but then at some point you have to be put into action so talk a little bit about that maybe any nerves that happen in the beginning and then just over time as you become you know hey i've done it hundreds of times i now you know have a little bit less nerves but it's because i've you know honed in or i've crafted this skill so well wow well that's a really Interesting, uh, interesting topic as well, Phil. So, um, you know, I think that um, there is, um, so there's there's a thought out there, and, and I'm not somebody who's read in depth about this, but there's a thought out there that to be, to attain mastery in any particular thing, you need to put in a certain number of hours. Uh, and I think that roughly translates into somewhere around the course of, not of like 10 years of like, you know, pretty solid doing something several hours a day. Yeah. Uh, uh, and the same probably applies in, in surgery. Um, and so, and there is a definite transition 
in in how the how how things work in, in along along these lines so you start out in medical school and then you go into residency well residency um, is where you really train to do surgery and manage patients medical school is a little bit more like the knowledge base and then there's a practical aspect to it while expanding the knowledge base and that's largely your your residency um, and the residency is designed to give you sort of a graduated autonomy through uh, several years where you are more and more practically managing patient problems yeah. under supervision with the idea being that when you get to the end of that you're ready to go into practice now um but but you're still not like the finished article by any means in fact you're right. probably never the finished article right so yeah so then you have achieved a certain amount of knowledge which uh and and practice uh but then the next step is to be independent um as a practitioner or, or a provider in medicine and that is a big step and it's yeah. a particularly big step in i think and maybe i'm biased but again you can only be in one pathway in your life so uh, i think it's a particularly big step in surgery because so now you have to actually do the operation <laughs> and go from doing an operation with the supervision of somebody else to to doing it independently um and if you're in uh, my field, there's can be big consequences to not getting something right in an operation. Right. Um, and man, that is can be really stressful, particularly early on. I mean, I remember for the first, you know, multiple years, really, where um, but particularly the first couple of years where I was like, oh, man, if you know, this is like, this is your, you've got really a lot of uh, you you there's really not a lot of margin for error right you reflect on things and you're like man i can't believe that you can be that close to sort of like being on the wrong side of things in terms of how people do um and so uh i i guess over the course it probably took me more than five years in practice to feel like relatively comfortable about my ability to to do things um and and part of it is like you know you're 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 independent and, and you're not you're not sure and every time things don't go perfect you're like oh man am i am i am i good enough for this can i do this should i be here um and but eventually over the course of time you look back and you're like, you know what, my my patients do as well as anybody else's patients, and so yeah. I must be okay. <laughs> uh, and um, and so eventually you sort of gain that confidence, and and but it but it takes a it takes a while. And I think people don't talk about that very much in the field, yeah. uh, but uh, I think that is likely true for most people. Like they they most people probably go through some period particularly early in their independent careers where they're where they're like on tender hooks they're doubting themselves etc cetera, etc cetera. now now it really helps again to have a supportive team around you just yes. as just if you just if you said before um and i and i've been fortunate to have that uh and and really when you do go into independent practice you ideally you want to be in a circumstance where when you have questions when you're 
unsure of yourself, you have people you can turn to who are readily available to, to help you. Um, you never go away from that completely. Like there's always complex issues that will come up. Uh, and even now I've been, you know, I've been in practice uh, for my independently for almost 10 years now, even now that all the time, there'll be stuff that comes up that I'll bounce off other people, et cetera, et cetera. So, so that never changes, but, but certainly early on in the first few years, I think having a, the right group around you is really critical to success. Yeah. Well, and so in addition to that, and once again, you're going to know all the uh, intri intricate pieces of your job, but the way I understand it is sometimes you don't have a whole heck of a lot of heads up that something <laughs> needs to get done. So, you know, I sit there and I think about, you know, a sports, an athlete, right? You know, a week in advance, hey, I am going to, I have to get mentally prepped for this sporting event by, you know, Sunday at noon, because that's when we're going to play the game. Sometimes you have that for, foresight to know, hey, you know, it's a week, it's a month out. But then there's other times where things just need to get done and you just kind of have to get prepped quickly. So talk a little bit about that dynamic, you know, maybe even early on where you didn't have as much confidence and you had to do it quickly. And now, hey, now that I've done this for, for a long time, you know, hey, I, I can be a little bit more cool, calm and collective on a short notice. Yeah, I mean, I think the the part of the success or part of the key to being successful in surgery is to be able to sort of control your emotions in the moment and not not lose your head yeah um, and it as with uh, as with anything the more you've done something uh the the easier it is because you can lean you can lean on on that what you know and and have done repeatedly when you get in trouble yeah. um and that's part of why you go through a training program is so that you know you get through those moments at least some before before you get into your own independent practice um you know when when you do there's also i think it's important to understand that you're always almost always better off doing something in a non-emergent fashion mm -hmm. right and yeah. so if you can calm things down, make a problem less of a problem, um, the, that almost always is, is going to work out better. Mm -hmm. uh, but of course, there, there are circumstances where um, you, you don't have that opportunity where things happen suddenly and then you kind of you have to sort of lean on uh, lean on the things that you know well uh, and and lean on the people around you who who are available to support you in that circumstance. Yeah. Now I don't I don't know if that answers your question well. I I think it answers it perfectly. Now, cardiothoracic surgeon, so talk about maybe the two or three things or types of surgeries that you spend the most time doing in your practice. Okay. So, yeah, so I mean the commonest operation uh for most uh, heart surgeons would be to do you know what's called coronary bypass surgery, uh, which is um, basically a surgery that people that we do for people who have blockages in the blood supply to the heart, and you and you use blood vessel from other locations to bypass that. So that'd be the commonest operation for most cardiac surgeon, including for myself. Yeah. Um, the the other operations that would be uh, that would be common would be heart valve related surgeries. Uh, 
So that'd be the, the another common thing. And then I and I have an interest in doing uh, aortic surgery. The aorta is a is a blood vessel that comes directly from the heart, and then it's a long blood vessel supplying blood flow through the body. So that's um, operating on that in the in the chest is something that I have an interest in. And then another one of my interests is is lung transplant, um, which is uh, which is sort of a a very complex but different field than for people who have um, for advanced uh, and irreversible lung disease. Now, as I understand it, and once again, we didn't talk about how you got to UNMC, so maybe you can preface that, but um, what the work that you're doing there is, you know, kind of top of the line leading the way, um, you know, there's not many other um, hospitals or institutions that are operating in the same way you guys are at the level you are. So I guess talk a little bit about how you end up getting to, to Omaha and then uh, talk a little bit about what you guys are doing there with the lung transplants. Yeah. So um, <laughs> another, another example of how you end up in places where you might end up in places where you, you would never have thought you would, you would be. <laughs> yeah. uh, and uh, so so after I completed general surgery training in Dallas, uh, I um, so during general surgery training in Dallas, I became interested in doing cardiothoracic surgery, um, and that was uh, not some that was not what I thought when I went into general surgery. I was sort of thinking I would do a different line, um, yeah. but the the way general surgery is set up is that you sort of experience during the course of five years, you experience several different subspecialties within surgery, uh, and then you might choose to go in the direction of one of those subspecialties if it interests you. And so so I sort of got interested in, in cardiothoracic surgery. Um, and uh, so as I finished my training in general surgery, I applied for training in cardiothoracic surgery, which is a subspecialty that involves more years of training. So, um, and again, there's this match process. Yeah. Uh, and so, so I matched into uh, the program at the University of Arizona, which is in Tucson, yeah. which, uh, you know, uh, again, I wouldn't have necessarily uh, thought that I would be there. Of, of course, I applied there and I liked the place and I was fortunate to get in. Um, and so that was sort of the next stop in the training. Um, and while I was there, uh, I uh, one of the faculty there was uh, was a surgeon by the name of Michael Michael Moulton, uh, and he was the lung transplant surgeon there. Uh, and uh, was while I was there, was sort of also in charge of my training for a period, and and the uh, chief of the division there. Um, and so, um, I, I did my first lung transplant, you know, was as a trainee with, with him doing, you know, yeah. being the surgeon, like the, the faculty surgeon. Yeah. Um, and in the first one I did, I was like, wow, this is really, this is really great. And, um, and I hadn't seen lung transplant prior to that. So yeah. I, you know, I hadn't, I'd gone into it thinking I want to do cardiothoracic surgery, but I hadn't developed a, a further subspecialty interest at that point. So, uh, but uh, the, yeah, the first one I was like, oh, this is great. Um, and so, uh, so, so I got interested in that and then, and I loved working with him and, and we've, we've remained 
you know, in, in touch sense. And he's, you know, I still, I still work with him. So, so that, that, so that was two years in, in Tucson during which time I was fortunate to see a fair amount of lung transplant, get really yeah. interested in it. Um, and I knew by the, by the, in, well, I was in my second year that I wanted to do that as part of my ongoing career. So yeah. the next step was to get some further training in that, uh, which, which actually took me back to England. Um, and, uh, but during, after I left Tucson, Michael Moulton actually ended up moving from there to where I currently am, the, you know, the University of Nebraska uh, as the chief of the division here. Uh, and so when I finished my additional training in England, I was looking for a job and sort of like done with my training finally. Uh, <laughs> and uh and uh, and he was the natural person because i'd already worked with him i knew he was great i wanted to work yes. with him more uh and uh and he was looking for someone to do lung transplant with here in in uh, omaha so so that's where yeah. i took my my job and now i've been here you know almost almost 10 years uh, we started a lung transplant program which didn't exist in, yeah. in nebraska prior to that so we we started a program and and that's been active for a little bit over, you know, a bit over five years. And and obviously we're trying to use that to help people who have end stage lung disease in the region. Yeah. And well, as you say, it, there's a relative lack of programs of that nature in the region. Yeah. So I was gonna say, I mean, on an annual basis, and maybe you know, maybe you don't know, but I mean, what percentage of transplants do you think you guys do here in, in Omaha versus maybe across the country? Oh, we're we're a, you know we're doing a small percent of what's being done in the country. Yeah. Um, you know we're the this is a relatively um, not a very population dense mm -hmm. region, um, and uh, the the incidence of any illness is obviously where there's more population. You'll hit, you'll see more of that. So right. so there's you know more lung transplants being done along the coast. Um, but there's not many centers in in this part of the country, um, which means that uh, you know although the population is dense, we're sort of the only program in in this area that uh, that you have to move go a little bit further geographically to to find another program. Yeah. Now, one thing I'd be curious to, you know, know a little bit about is with a job that has as much stress and demand as yours does, you know, how does one be able to not leave work at work? Because I think that's an overrated statement. It always comes home with you. I mean, anything you do for the majority of your day is going to going to be a part of the rest of your day. But how are you able to then transition and say, all right, now I'm dad, now I'm husband. And, you know, I, I need to put work aside for a little bit to free up, you know, my capacity for for my family. Yeah, well, uh, I I don't know that I have the answer to that, Phil. I mean, I, <laughs> I am not I'm not necessarily the the role model for, for that. So uh, you're right. Work very much does end up coming home. Uh, and I'm lucky with the support I get at home and, and yeah. the fact that they, the, you know, people aren't kicking me out of the home. Um, the, uh, you know, particularly if you're in the transplant uh, field, which, which I am, you, you, there's um, stuff related to transplant that happens all 24 hours a, a day, seven days a week. Um, one of the things that a friend of mine told me, uh, and I try to remember this is that, uh, particularly for, 
for my, my I have two boys, so particularly for them, is uh, you know th that they really don't want anything much more than your time, right? Yeah. Uh, and but time is kind of perhaps the most precious thing that we have. Absolutely. But boy, I I, I try to re I try to remember that 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 uh, just need to take a little bit of time. They don't necessarily want a a lot of time. Uh, you know, but but if they if they ask for something or they have something planned, then I then I obviously I try my best to give them that time and a little bit of my time. But but I am in in no you know in no way the, the role model for for that aspect of things. No, I love that. And you know, I think it's so true. And my my friends know this about me, and I, I tell them frequently, I go, I don't always have the most quantity of time, but the time that I will give you, I, I won't be checking my cell phone, right? I'm not going to be looking at emails. I'm not going to be texting people back. Like I will give you an hour. I, I would love to give you four, but maybe I only have an hour. But in that hour, it is, you know, you and I dedicated time. I, I promise I will try not to be interrupted. So I think yeah, there's a good. lot to be said about that. Yeah, you make a great point. Um, I, uh, yeah, I could do I could do better with that. I, 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 I absolutely recognize your your thought on that, though. I think that we can get too caught up in the phone, and 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 I certainly do. Uh, but if you can give people quality time, so it's it's the time plus it's the quality of the time, isn't it? Yes, yes. And you want to do both of those things, ideally. Yeah. Yeah, that's it. Once again, it's been a conversation piece amongst my circle because they're like, Phil, you're never around for like four or five hours. I'm like, I'm not. But if I was around for that long, it wouldn't be very good, you know, because eventually I would need to I would need to do things. Right. But if I'm here for an hour or two, I can promise that you will get all of me. And, you know, once again, I know myself well enough. I don't even keep work email on my phone because it's like I know I would start checking it. So, you know, I try and put some guards up on my, you know, on the controllables that way I can, you know, be focused when I'm with people. So I, I think that's a great point. You know, there's the, there's uh, one of the thoughts, one of the things I've, I've thought about, but I haven't done is to go back to a dumb phone. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right? And it's like, you know, maybe then you could just sort of step away and put some of this stuff aside. Right. Um, and I'm so dependent on my phone for work that it that it would be so I'm not sure how I would actually achieve that, but it's definitely crossed my mind <laughs> that it that if I were able to set that aside or 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 then then that would lead to better quality of time. Yes. Well, Dr. Sadiq, I know you've got kiddos to take to a football game. And so on the topic of time with kids, I want to make sure I honor that. But thank you so much for just sharing your journey and I mean, all the amazing things that you've done and are doing. And honestly, I uh, just can't wait to continue to watch your journey. And, you know, in probably three or four years, we'll have to do this again and talk about the new advances and things you've learned and uh, all the great things you've continued to do. Thank you, Phil. This has been this has been great. And it's great talking to you and um, and lovely to be on your on your podcast. Hope hope to see you soon outside of work and we can <laughs> find some quality time, hopefully. Yes. <laughs>